All right, we are back. On June 10th, I had a chance to hear a very informative lecture over at uh, Sutter Medical Center, an update on HIV, and I thought it would be good to share some of this update uh, with you. So uh, joining me now is Barry Siegel, an internist with Sutter Medical Group, to talk about uh, what is new and, and update us on the matter of HIV. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Barry Siegel. Thank you very much for asking me to come on the show today. Well, Dr. Siegel, you, you talked about an update. To what's new? Started out with a bit of the uh, of, of what we've learned in the past uh, past few years about how HIV got started, and that's uh, that's something I thought we were taking a minute to address. We've now apparently uh, established that it did come into the human population from apes about what seventy years ago. Well, uh, as best we can tell, it first entered the human population in a sustainable fashion sometime in the 1930s in Africa. Now, the virus actually came from one of the simian immunodeficiency viruses um, and immunodeficiency viruses in other primates. Now, we've been trading viruses, or I should say being infected by viruses, from other primates for hundreds if not thousands of years. Um, In the real world, Uh, People hunt primates for food. Normally, I go down to the uh, uh, supermarket and get my meat in this nice plastic package, but in the real world, you go out and hunt whatever animals are available, and primates are a source of uh, protein and food in Africa as well as some other countries. So people are being constantly exposed to the blood of these animals, and humans are frequently infected with some of the viruses from infected animals. And HIV is just one of those viruses that evolved. And uh, and I gather that um, at this point in time now in Africa, the numbers are really getting quite staggering. It's getting to be very scary in all candor. If we look around the world at the moment, there about 40 million people currently infected with HIV and alive. Over 25 million of those live in sub-Sahara Africa. At the moment, that's the most heavily impacted part of the world. And I guess some of these, these infection rates are, are quite uh, quite amazing. Um, I read, I think, yesterday's paper, they said that like, currently now in South Africa, they're estimating that a third of the population has it. Well, there are even far worse places. If you go to Swaziland, uh, there's some recent data indicating that over 42% of the adults are infected with the HIV virus. That 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 really is is quite staggering, and and I um I, I know that um, there's a great concern now of it uh, striking the Indian subcontinent. Right. In fact, what we're seeing now is rapid spread into Asia, basically. India, we think, may have almost as many people infected with the HIV virus as South Africa, but the rates are increasing in an alarming fashion. And what we're really worried about is this virus spreading through India, China, and then moving northwards. Uh, We don't have real hard data from some of these countries because many of them are poor and this is not where they can afford to invest a lot of information tracking the epidemiology. In China, 
We think there may be as many as a million people currently infected. And without aggressive intervention, that could skyrocket over the next five years. What, let's talk a little bit about about uh, intervention. It's it's certainly uh, been proven, I think, in, with HIV is, is the old the old saw that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, I think we'll need to talk about that a little bit. But but first off, um, I'm benefiting Dr. Siegel from your, from your, the notes I took during your lecture in front of me that things are doing quite well in Europe, uh, and, and you attributed that somewhat to the needle exchange program. Well, that's in Western Europe. Yeah. Eastern Europe, unfortunately is not doing as well. But in Western Europe, uh, they started experimenting with needle exchange very early on. In fact, in the um, late 1980s, a group of us on our way to one of the international meetings stopped in Amsterdam, and the director of their needle exchange program there gave us copies of the data that had already collected at that point. They had set up a system of city buses. They had converted three city buses to basically be mobile methadone maintenance and needle exchange, and they would go around the city on a set schedule. And what they found was that the addicts who uh, participated in the program, their needle sharing dropped dramatically. Also, there was no increase, or I should say no unexpected increase, in the number of new users. They were also able to divert some of these users into treatment. Basically, if someone walked in and said, I'd like to try cleaning up, they'd get them in a treatment program that day. Here in the U.S., we'll put them on a waiting list for six months, maybe. Well, do you think we physicians here in the U.S., since it clearly seems to be effective in Europe, maybe need to start lobbying a little bit stronger for this in in the U.S.? Uh, We definitely do. When you look at the data, Every well-designed needle exchange program has worked. Yeah. You see decreased needle sharing, therefore decreased spread of the HIV virus between drug users, and also decreased spread, therefore, to their sexual partners. If they're not infected, they're not going to infect others. Well, one thing I wasn't aware of till I, till I went to your lecture was how we've had to sort of look at the, the epidemiology here in the U.S. and that people have been focusing in on heterosexuals, homosexuals, but it turns out that there's a rather substantial population that, that doesn't consider itself to be homosexual, nevertheless is with uh, men having sex with other men. And I guess that this sort of an awareness we've had to sort of bring to the public, too. Right. This has been a major problem here in the U.S., there's a lot of discrimination against those who have uh, sex with the same gender. In other words, men who have sex with men and uh, women who have sex with other women. And because of that prejudice, many people have a very hard time admitting to themselves that they're actually attracted to members of the same sex. There uh, has been a great deal of work on this. In fact, there was a uh, study that was with a poster at the National Retroviral Conference in February looking at a group of men in South Carolina. Basically, they were looking at men who were newly infected with HIV. And what they found was when they looked at who was being infected, there was a group of men who were self-identified as being men who have sex with men and women. But when you drill down, you found, they found out that the vast majority of these men 
were young college African-American men. And when they investigated further, they found out about a third of those men had never had sex with a woman in their lives, mm-hmm. had only been having sex with men, but nevertheless identified themselves as also having sex with women. These are the people that were diagnosed as being newly infected. And we see this trend across the board. It also occurs in Latinos and in whites as well. We need to talk a little bit, I think, about, about the pound of cure and the ounce of prevention. Um, we'll start with the, that pound of cure first. And I think there's some good news, I gather, in terms of the fact that, like, vertical transmission, in other words, um, passing along HIV from, from pregnant mother to child, uh, thanks to the use of the drugs we have available, that's really been, been minimized. We've made tremendous progress in that area, especially in the Western industrialized world. Um, here in the U.S., if we can get to a mother who's HIV positive, get her started on antiviral drugs with an elective C-section and giving the child antivirals at birth, we can decrease that child's risk of infection to under 2%. Yeah. In the early days of this epidemic, we thought the risk might be as high as 50%. Right. And then as we got more data, we were greatly relieved to see, well, it was only about 25% risk. Needless to say, this is tremendous progress. Yeah, and, and of course now we have various different antivirals. Um, I guess people don't necessarily realize the... The vexing thing about about treating a virus is it's it's very simplicity and that it, it's difficult to find a way to, to get at it. And now we have several ways of, of stopping um, stopping how the virus makes more of itself. And I gather there's some more there's some new ones coming up in, in the pipeline. Right. The tricky thing about HIV is that it's an RNA virus, and for uh, I guess those in your audience who aren't. Uh, biologic science majors, let me translate for a moment. Uh, The virus's genetic code is made out of RNA, and it will put its genetic code into the cell and then uses special enzymes to make a DNA copy of its genetic code, and it then puts its DNA inside the cell's own DNA. Once it's there, we can't get it out. It's there for the life of the cell. That's what makes it so difficult to treat, because once someone's infected, we can't go in and remove that DNA from all the infected cells. But we have drugs we can give people that will prevent those infected cells from producing viruses that can successfully infect new cells. In short, we can suppress it down to very, very low levels to where we can't even detect its activity. When we do that, people's immune system recovers, and basically they do extremely well. But the virus is very tricky. If you miss doses of medications, this virus will rapidly mutate and become resistant to the drugs. So I guess you'd say that even though even though there's a, you can control it very well at present time with the, with the drugs we have, it's really extremely difficult to maintain anyone on that regimen very difficult in that all we ask of people is they be perfect. Yeah, Never right. miss a dose. And right. For most of us in the real world, that's very difficult. We've come a long ways, though. In the early days, our first drug, um, ACT, we thought it had to be dosed every four hours around the clock. 
So people would be setting their alarms at 4 a.m. to get up to take their dose of AZT. Nowadays, we have some newer drugs which stay active in the body for a longer period of time. And if we're lucky, we can frequently come up with a once-a-day regimen. But once again, you can't miss taking it. We're speaking with Barry Siegel, an internist with the Sutter Medical Group, about HIV. Um, Dr. Siegel, let, let's talk about probably the, the best news out there, which has to do, I think, in the way of that, uh, that ounce of prevention and the fact that, above all else, condoms do work. Uh, you're right. That's been the frustrating thing with this virus. On the one hand, it's extremely easy to prevent, but in order to prevent it, we have to talk about sex honestly and openly, and that's something we've chosen not to do in our society, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But this uh, virus is a sexually transmitted disease, and it can also be spread through sharing, of course, contaminated needles. But worldwide, it's a heterosexually transmitted disease. And if we can get people to use condoms, we can stop the spread of this virus dead in its tracks. The key is you've got to use barriers for essentially all sexual activity. I think we have to probably take take uh, take on the issue of the fact that there seems to be a kind of a government disinformation campaign right now telling people that uh, condoms are not so good. Funny you should mention that. Uh, you'll be happy to know your tax dollars are currently paying for a uh, website run by our government giving... Uh, parents' information on condoms and uh, birth control so they can educate their children. On the website, they claim there's a 15% failure rate for condoms. But if you look at the data, the risk of condom slippage and condom breakage is actually well under 4%. If you throw in data on people that don't always use condoms, it's 14%. So we'll give the site the benefit of the doubt and round off at 15%. But Uh if that's how we analyze the data, then let's take a closer look at abstinence. When we analyze the effectiveness of abstinence, we have to throw in the data from those people that that don't always abstain. (laughs) Which which would mean that if you abstain from sex, you can get every STD known to man and become pregnant. So abstinence is actually very dangerous. I have a little trouble understanding that one. Well, I'm I'm with you on that. Any final any final words here on this subject? There's there's some there's some concerns about what's happening around the world, but at least fortunately here in the West, uh, there seems to be some some reason for hope. Are you optimistic? Actually, given our current administration's disinformation campaign, I'm discouraged. Hmm. I am hopeful that um, eventually we will raise reach a point where we can talk honestly and openly about sex, mention the word condom, and if we can do that, we can stop this virus dead in its tracks. Remind everyone that they, they do have to, you know, be, exercise sensible precautions here in, in sexual activity. Right. In fact, there was a campaign, a um, safe sex campaign in one of the Scandinavian countries, um, Oh, gosh, it's been over 15 years ago, where on the city buses, they had 30-meter-long pictures of condoms with slogans on them. And my favorite one was from Chekhov, Still Love is Possible. So it is still possible to be sexually active and safe. Use condoms.
that's really the take-home message. Well, Dr. Barry Siegel, we appreciate your speaking with us and, and hope that uh, you might uh, you know join us again sometime. Thank you very much for asking me to be on. It's well, a pleasure. All righty. We thank Barry Siegel for that update on the situation with HIV-AIDS. But, uh, of course, the main problem is centered in Africa. And joining me at this point is Dr. Andrew Nangalama, MD, PhD. Dr. Nangalama comes from Uganda and is very much involved in raising aid to, uh, to benefit the great number of orphaned children whose parents have died of HIV-AIDS. Uh, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Andrew Nangalama. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, Dr. Nagalama, I, I had a chance to read a, a press release you put out about how you recently visited villages in, in eastern Uganda and were shocked at the conditions of the schools, medical clinics, and hospitals, and that uh, there seems to be almost lack of everything, uh, educational materials, classroom, classroom buildings, uh, a children's hostel, medical care, etc., etc., etc. So you're trying to do something about that. Yes, I'm trying to do something about that, and uh, Specifically, I chose only one particular area because there are many areas, and uh, I'm targeting key children whose parents have become uh, victims of HIV-AIDS. It's estimated two out of five kids between the age of 5 to 16 have only one or or two parents, both of them, uh, deceased because of HIV-AIDS. Your group is called... uh has an acronym, N-A-M-C-A, I guess that's North American Masaba Cultural Association. What is Masaba? Masaba represents the people who come from the mountains of eastern Uganda, which is bordering Kenya. Uh, the mountains are called Masaba Mountains. It's like a tribal region. And uh, we do recognize that for few of us who are here in North America, we can do something back home. To make a difference and uh, I've been uh, blessed to have this opportunity of being a physician and uh, sometimes to have resources that I've taken the responsibility to help out as a, a leader in this organization. Yeah, I understand even with even with the large extended families in the area that there's been such devastation from HIV AIDS that uh, that the huge numbers of children really literally have no family members to care for them. They, they lack fa- uh, families, sometimes they lack grown-ups because even though it's uh, always say it takes a village to raise a child, but you know, you may find that there are only a few people in the village who have to stand up to help the rest, so that the resources thin out and uh, uh, then these children uh, end up adopting risk behaviors, uh, which includes uh, prostitution, uh, not attending school, stealing, and if they have no education opportunities, then they have no future at all. By the time the parents, or one or two, die, they have spent all the money for taking care of their health. So eventually, this becomes a poverty, which has its own. Well, I think the Peace Corps once said uh, in an advertisement they ran on television that you can't uh, you can't save the whole world, but you can save a part of it, and certainly I think that uh, your efforts through NAMCA to at least affect one part of, uh, of Uganda are certainly a worthy cause. I want to give our listeners um, uh, information where they can reach you for further information and how they can, how they can help. 
We are trying to develop a website now, but uh, they can reach me uh, uh, right now. The uh, phone number is 916 549 3973. 916 549 3973. The email, local email, is uh, a nangalama at yahoo.com. And that's A N A N G A L A M A. Well, we appreciate your coming on and informing us about this. I'd like to, uh, to see how this progresses in the months to come. I'll have you come on again. And particularly, Dr. Nangalama, I've spoken to you in the past about, about your history, how it is you came to this country from Uganda, and it is, it is a truly fascinating story I'd like you to share at some point with our listeners. I look forward to discuss, and thank you very much for the opportunity. look forward to talking to you again. Well, me too, we'll, we, we, we will, and we'll certainly do that in the months to come. Thank you, sir. All righty. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.